Um, all right, let's uh, switch gears now. Um, if you haven't been here, uh, a couple weeks ago we started a new series uh, called When People Collide. That's what we've been talking about. What happens when we butt heads with somebody else, when we disagree with somebody else, whether it's at work or whether it's at home, but uh, we push someone else's buttons or they push our buttons or a conflict erupts and somebody's expectations didn't get met and words are said and things are done and things are maybe thrown, whatever it is. But what do we do when we collide and conflict or conflict with other people? And we started this series by reading something Jesus said about this. Jesus basically said, when you have undealt with conflict with somebody else in your life, you need to pretty much drop everything else and go deal with that conflict. That it's that important. You need to go and be reconciled to that person. And then uh, the Apostle Paul, um, he one time wrote something in a letter that he wrote to his friends at Rome. He wrote this. Uh, he said, live in harmony with one another. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. In other words, if there's any conflict in your life, you need to deal with it, you need to be reconciled, you need to find peace and harmony and good relationships. As far as it depends on you, make sure you deal with that. And maybe you're thinking, um, or maybe you've been thinking, well, Jesus and Paul, um, that's easy for you to say, uh, but you don't work where I work, right? Or you don't know my boss, uh, or you don't have my kids or my spouse. In fact, you never had kids or a spouse, so maybe that's why it was so easy to be peaceful with everybody, right? Um, that's a joke. Uh, but I think that would be unfair, because Jesus and Paul knew what conflict was like, they knew how difficult it was to deal with other people. In fact, I want to tell you a quick story from Paul's life. Um, Paul uh, had a friend named Barnabas. Uh, Paul and Barnabas were really good friends, and Barnabas was this amazing guy. Um, he's described in the New Testament as a, as, a, as a great friend, as somebody who's always encouraging, always supportive. And when, when Paul first became a Christian, Barnabas was one of the first people that believed in Paul, that, that stood by him and supported him, and they developed this really close friendship uh, so much so that as, uh, a few years later when Paul decided to start traveling around the world to tell people about Jesus and his faith and to help start churches, he asked Barnabas to go with him and Barnabas went with him and they traveled all around what's modern day Turkey and they did all this amazing work and, and they became like this formidable team that worked together. Well, they came back home, uh, they rested for a little while and then the book of Acts tells us what happens next. Look at this story real quick. It says this, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. So they're about to head off on this second trip and, and Barnabas basically says, let's take John Mark along with us. And by the way, John Mark was Barnabas's cousin and Paul says, are you kidding me? Do you remember what happened last time we took John Mark with him? So apparently on the first trip where they journeyed everywhere, they took John Mark with him. And this is told in the book of Acts as well. About halfway through the trip, John Mark deserted them. 
And Paul is saying, don't you remember when he bailed on us? He abandoned us? He, he couldn't take it? And, and we don't know the details of why John Mark deserted them. We don't know if there was a disagreement with Paul. We don't know if there was some sort of conflict. We don't know if he got sick. Uh, we don't know if the trip was a whole lot harder than he thought it was going to be, right? Oh, we're walking the whole way? Like, I did not know that. Like, nobody told me that was going to be this trip. You know, we don't know what happened, but halfway through the trip, he just bailed. When things got tough, John Mark was like, I'm heading home. This is too hard. And so when Barnabas says, let's give John Mark another chance, that was the kind of guy Barnabas was. He saw the good in everybody. Like, let's just give him another chance and let's ask him to go on the second trip with us. And Paul's like, no way. Are you kidding me? And look at what happens next. Acts continues and it says this. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and he left. And you see this, this one conflict, this one dispute between these two friends who had worked so well together, who had become basically best friends, who were this formidable team. I mean, they were the original pioneers of the early Christian movement. This one conflict, they tore them apart. And they couldn't resolve it in the immediate. And so Barnabas went his way and he found somebody to go with him. And Paul went his way and he found someone to go with him. And they never traveled together again. This, this thing severely changed the entire relationship. Now, there are indications later in some of the New Testament writings that Barnabas and Paul did reconcile as friends. There's even indications in two of the letters that Paul wrote, he says that now John Mark is traveling with him again. So there's indications that Paul reconciled in some form or fashion with John Mark. They sort of made up and he reconciled in some form or fashion with Barnabas, but it certainly changed the nature of the relationship. And so Paul understood what it was like to have significant conflict, to have difficult relationships in his life. In fact, as he went around starting these churches all over the Mediterranean, that would be one of the biggest issues he saw in churches and in communities of faith. He would see these friends who would have these difficult issues or these conflicts, and it would start to rip apart the relationship, and sooner or later it would start to tear apart the whole community. And so many of the letters that Paul wrote were about conflict and dealing with conflict. In fact, there's one letter he writes to his friends at Philippi. Philippi was one of the first churches that Paul helped start in Europe. And he writes back to his, his friends in Philippi. And for most of the letter, it's really nice. And he's talking about all these great things. And then at the very end of the letter, he calls out two women in the church by name. Look at this. It says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And apparently there was some conflict between these two women, Yodia and Syntyche, and something had tore them apart and everyone knew it and everyone had heard about it. And Paul is saying, I'm pleading with you. Can you guys resolve your conflict? Can you reconcile? Because it's, it's creating all kinds of damage. I need you to get back on the same page and figure out how to make peace and come back together. Now think about that for a second. Imagine if I wrote an email to our whole church and like started talking about all the great things that God is doing and all the babies and the child dedication and all this stuff. And at the end of the letter, I was like, hey, and by the way, Marissa and Caitlin, can you guys like knock it off? 
Like, we know what's going on, and it's tearing the whole community apart, and we're all having to pick sides, and you keep talking behind one another's back, and all this stuff is that. Can you guys just deal with that? Can you imagine that? And yet, for Paul, it was really important because he saw how conflict could tear relationships apart, could tear people apart, could eventually tear communities apart. And so on and on, in so many of these letters, he gives advice about how to deal with other people, what to do when you collide with other people. And that's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. And so I want to read you one of those passages today, and then we're going to read a different one from Paul next week. But I want to read you one passage where Paul sort of zeroes in on one aspect of what it means to relate to other people and how to deal with relationships in your life. And he's very strong in some of his language. So look at what he says. This is that same letter to, to the Philippians in Philippi. He says this earlier in the letter, before he sort of calls out the two women by name. He says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That's a pretty big statement, right? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, you might think he's just speaking generally. Do nothing in life, but he's not. He's, you'll see in just a second, he's specifically talking about in our relationships with others. Because what Paul knew is that when we get in a relationship with someone else, whether it's a work relationship or a friend relationship or a roommate or, or a loved one or a spouse or someone like that, most of the time when we enter relationships, we're focused on what we can get out of the relationship. We're focused on what someone else can do for us, what we can get out of the relationship. We have our wants, we have our needs, we have our expectations, we have our desires. And that's just how we tend to navigate personal relationships. And basically what Paul is saying is don't do that. Don't approach things selfishly. That's what selfish ambition or vain conceit is about. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Because what Paul knew is that conflict usually happens in relationships when we don't get what we want. <laughs> when things aren't going the way we think they should go, when we're not getting out of it, when they're not meeting our needs, when they're not doing what we want, when they're not meeting the expectations that we potentially have, and when we don't get what we want out of a relationship, usually we'll do what we can to try to get what we want. In fact, there's a few different tools we'll use to try to get what we want out of relationships. Uh, the first tool that we often use is the tool of convince, right? <laughs> if you're not giving me what I want or you're not doing what I think you should do, I'll do everything in my power to convince you that you should give me what I want or you should be doing what I want. I'm not getting the credit I think I deserve. I'm not getting the respect I think I should deserve. I'm not getting the time or the attention that I think I should deserve. And so I'm gonna try to convince you that that's a real need and that you need to be meeting it and you need to be doing that for me. I'll try to convince you as much as possible, but, but here's a second tool we'll often use. It's the tool of convict. <laughs> you see, if you're not actually giving me what I think you owe me, I'll make you feel bad about it. I'll make you feel guilty. I, I'll, I'll even sort of try to help you see that you're acting out of character. I might even try to get God on my side. <laughs> I might even try to help you think that God is upset at the way you're treating me and that God would want you to treat me differently. I'll make you feel guilty. I'll make you feel ashamed. I'll try to convict you to make you feel like you're doing the wrong thing. So I'll try to convince. I'll try to convict. But then here's the third tool that I'll use. It's control, right? 
I'll do whatever it takes to get to the point where you will finally look back at me and you'll say, fine, just tell me what you want and I'll do it. And that's the place I want to be because now I'm in control. Now I can get what I want. See, these are the three tools we often use, convince, convict, and control. And we learn these from a very young age, right, new parents? <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. All these families who are up here, those kids have you wrapped around their little fingers, right? I mean, they can convince you really well when they're not getting what they want. They can make you feel really guilty about not feeding them or not putting them to bed or not changing their diaper. I mean, you can feel like the worst parent in the world when you're not doing things the way you should be doing. And ultimately, they have pretty much full control over you, don't they? But we don't grow out of that. I mean, as kids, we're still convincing and convicting and controlling. As students, middle school and high school students were doing that. As young adults were doing that. As old adults, we're still using those tools to try to get what we want out of relationships. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition to try to get what you want from other people. In fact, he goes on and he says this next. He says, rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You see, when you do everything out of selfish ambition, basically what you're saying is, my interests are above your interests. My needs are more important than your needs. My desires and my expectations are more important than your desires and your expectations. That's what convince, convict, and control are all about. But what Paul is saying is you need to actually do the opposite. You need to place other people's interests above yours. You need to value other people's needs and wants and desires and expectations above yours. Now, what's really important here, and don't miss this, he's not saying that other people are more important than you. That's not what he's saying at all. In fact, all throughout Paul's letters, he's pretty clear. Everybody is important. Everybody's important to God. Everyone has worth. No one is more important than another person. But he's saying it's an attitude or a perspective that I want you to adopt where, and he actually uses an accounting term, this word that's translated as value. It could also be account, account to others, consider others, place a value on others or their interests is higher than yours. Not because they actually are, not because they actually deserve more than you do. Everyone is important, but I want you to enter into relationships and when you enter into them, I want you to see other people's needs and desires and wants and interests. I want you to see them and account to them and consider them is greater than yours. That's a totally countercultural viewpoint, isn't it? That's not what we learn from a young age. That's not what we're taught, right? You gotta look out for number one because nobody else is gonna look out for you. You gotta always take care of yourself first because nobody else will. You gotta work hard. And if you've worked hard and if you've waited your turn and if you've earned your due, then you should get what you deserve and other people should get what they deserve too. But that's not what Paul is saying. 
Paul is saying, I want you to take other people's interests and I want you to place them, and it's not about whether they deserve it or not. I just want you to place their interests above yours. And then Paul says something really fascinating. And he steps back for a second because basically what he wants to do is he wants to step back and he wants to give us a 30,000 foot viewpoint. Because he's been talking about specific relationships. When you have relationships with other people, but now I want to tell you why I have such the audacity to say that you should do nothing out of selfishness and you should always consider other people's interests above yours. Let me tell you why I believe that. And I want to read you what Paul says next. And we're going to take a little bit of a detour here as we read this because he's going to get really deep and he's going to get really profound and he's going to get really rich and really theological and he's going to say some things that are really, really important when it comes to our relationships with other people. Look at what he says next. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So don't forget, in your relationships with other people, that's what I'm talking about. Keep that in mind. This is all about your relationships with other people. In your relationships with other people, I want you to enter those and approach those in the same way that Jesus approached his relationship with you. I want you to have the attitude and perspective in your relationships with other people that Jesus had in his specific relationship with you. And then Paul quotes from an ancient hymn or an ancient song or an ancient creed. And we know this because in the Greek language that he wrote, it's a lot more clear that there's a structure and it's almost poetic in the way it's written. You don't see it as much in the English, but it's clear that he's quoting something else. And it might've been one of the earliest creeds. You know, sometimes we say the apostles creed here, that's our statement of faith. And this might've been one of the earliest creeds that had begun to circulate around early Christianity. It's what people believed about Jesus. And so Paul is basically saying, you know that statement that we say about what we believe about Jesus? Let's revisit that, and I want you to see that through the lens of how we relate to other people. So in your relationships with other people, have this attitude that Jesus had, and he goes on. He says, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, Jesus was God, right? We believe that as followers of Jesus, that's what we say. We say this creed all the time. We believe Jesus was God, and so he deserved all power, all honor, all glory, right? We sing these songs all the time, and we talk about all the things that are due to him. If anyone ever deserved to be treated with the utmost respect, it was Jesus. I mean, if anyone could have ever played the God card, and said, look, uh, my interests are a lot more important than yours. I'm God, right? Hey, Peter, like I know you have some goals in life, but my goals are just a little bit bigger than your goals and more important than Like if anyone could have ever said, my interests are more important and more valuable than anyone else's interests, it was Jesus. But he never played that card. He never used that to his own advantage. Instead, Paul goes on, rather, he, that is Jesus, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In other words, Jesus let go of all those privileges, 
All of that status, all of the thing that was, all the stuff that was due to him as God, all the things that, that he would have deserved. He let go of it. He, 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 he set it aside. He made himself nothing. And he became what? A servant. A, a human being. He, he took on human flesh. He became a human being who got sick and had allergies, right? And, and, and was disrespected and, 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 and was walked all over and taken advantage of by other people. He didn't have to do that, but he chose to do that. And then Paul goes on and says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know what Paul is saying here? He's basically saying, here's what Jesus did for you and for me. Here's what Jesus did for the sake of a relationship with us. He humbled himself. He, he put your interests above his interests. He, he considered you as more important than him. So much so that he allowed people to persecute him. He allowed people to accuse him falsely of things he didn't do and he just took it. He allowed soldiers to arrest him and beat him. He allowed people to spit on him and mock him, right? And at any point, he could have stopped and he could have said, hold on, hold on. I'm God. I do not deserve this, right? This is, I could, do you understand who I am? Do you understand what you should be saying and doing for me right now? Do you know what I'm entitled to? He never did that. He, he never played that God card. He never pulled rank. He, he humbled himself for us. He even submitted himself to death. The ultimate submission. He submitted himself to death for our sake and for the sake of the relationship. And this is so powerful because basically what Jesus is demonstrating is how important relationship is. And then he's modeling the way for how to have and how to enter into relationship with other people and how to reconcile relationships with other people. And you know what Jesus' toolbox for doing that is? He, he almost never uses convince, convict, and control. He uses a whole different set of tools. The tools he uses are serve, submit, and sacrifice. First, Jesus served us, right? Do you remember the, the image in his last week of his life of him serving the other disciples and going around and washing their feet and saying, like, I'm modeling for you something? He served it. He placed himself beneath others to serve them. Which makes us ask, what if we approach every relationship in that same way? What if, what if you ask the question, how can I serve my coworkers, my boss, my neighbors, my friends, my roommate, my family members? When Jesus came, he didn't just serve, he also submitted himself to us. 
which is a little odd to think about him submitting, but basically submitting is just saying, I'm gonna place your interests above my interests. I'm gonna take all the things that are due for me, all the things that I'm entitled to, all the glory and all the respect and all those things, and I'm just gonna lay those things aside. And I'm gonna consider you as more important than me. I'm gonna consider your needs as more important than mine. And basically what he was saying with us is I'm gonna consider your need for reconciliation to the Father as more important than me. Which means not only did he serve and he submit, but he ultimately sacrificed. That's how far he went. He was so passionate about considering our needs as more important that he sacrificed himself for us. He offered his life for us. A restored relationship with God was so important that he was willing to say, I'll give my life so that they can be reconciled to the Father. And you see, if we're gonna reconcile with other people, if we're gonna follow in his footsteps and love other people, then we need to be willing to serve. We need to be willing to submit, to say, I'm gonna put their interests above mine. And ultimately, that means at times we're gonna have to sacrifice. It means sacrificing maybe making them pay. It means sacrificing maybe giving them what they deserve and making sure we get what we deserve. Now, maybe, um, maybe you're thinking uh, a couple pushbacks here for Paul. Uh, first pushback is how does this work practically? Because Paul, you don't know my situation and if you knew mine, it wouldn't be as easy as just saying, would you just serve and submit and sacrifice you know, in this relationship? It's, that's, that's a lot easier to say than it is to do. How does that work? Well, he gets really practical in some of his other letters. And we're gonna read another passage next week where he walks through, how do you do that, especially when a relationship is broken? How do you have that conversation with someone? And how do you actually serve them and submit to them and sacrifice to them? And, and how do you pursue reconciliation when it's complex and hard? Now, maybe you're, you're saying, well, hold on, here's another pushback. Um, doesn't this feel a bit unrealistic? I mean, if we serve and submit and sacrifice for everyone, will I ever get my way? Will I just always be holding the door, right? No, 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 you just keep going. No, 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 no. Like, I'll just keep, like, will I always be last? Won't people just take advantage of that? I mean, if I'm always the one serving and submitting and sacrificing, if I'm always putting other people's interests above my own, won't people take advantage of that? And I think Paul would say, yep, they will. And now you see the dilemma that God faced when he looked at all of us who had been selfish in our own ways, who had turned our back on him, who had walked away from him, who were broken in our relationship from him. And maybe in heaven, the conversation went like this. How do we reconcile them to us? I can imagine Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit, and maybe the angels are all listening. How do we pursue reconciliation? And Jesus is saying, you know what? I'll put their interests above mine. 
I'll go down there. I'll set aside everything I have here and I'll go down there for them. And the angels are going, are you crazy? You know how many people are gonna take advantage of that? You know how many people won't be grateful for that? You know how many people won't care about that? You know how many people will take advantage of the very grace and mercy and forgiveness that you're willingly gonna offer to them? I can imagine Jesus saying, yeah, yeah, I am aware of that, but it's that important. A relationship of reconciliation with the Father is that important that I'm willing to go and not make them pay for whatever it is they deserve. In fact, I'm willing to go and absorb the consequences for them and maybe not even get what I deserve. And I'm just gonna trust that God the Father will ultimately work it all out in the end. And and if we could keep reading, we don't have time to do that this morning. Paul says that that's actually what God the Father does. That one day, Jesus will get all the credit that is due to him. He will get all the honor and the glory and the power and the respect that is due to him. That one day, Paul says, everyone will bow down and worship him as they should. But has that happened yet? No. And it's almost as if Jesus is still waiting. He's still prioritizing. He's still saying a relationship with people is more important. So I'll wait and I'll put that off and I'll wait as long as I can so that as many as possible can hear about the mercy and the forgiveness that I'm willing to offer to them. The relationship is that important to him. And so if we bring it back to each of our situations. Here's the question that I'd like to ask you to ask today. Is there anyone in your life that you're spending a lot of energy convincing, maybe convicting, maybe trying to control? Who in your life are you trying to get your way with? What if you were able to step back and ask the question, what if I put their interests above my interest? What if I considered them as more important? And maybe you'd say, I can't do that. <laughs> I just can't. I, like, as I think about them right now, I cannot do that. And I'd say, yeah, you can. Because Jesus did it for you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, he lives in you. You can. He can do it through you. He can give you the same power that allowed him to do that and then to raise from the dead to serve and submit and maybe even sacrifice for the benefit of others, not because they deserve it. It's not about what they deserve or what you deserve. That's not why Jesus did it. He just did it because he loves you. And the relationship was that important. Next week, we'll talk about how to try to do that practically. But today, would you be willing to simply say, Jesus, I want to serve and submit and sacrifice for the sake of, you fill in the blank with their name. (laughs) I don't know how to do that. That seems impossible. That seems really hard. I don't even want to do that, but I want to want 
to serve, to submit, to sacrifice for them in the same way you did for me. Let me pray for us. Father God, we are so thankful for Jesus and what he did for all of us. And we confess today that oftentimes we think solely about what Jesus did for us in terms of our relationship with you. And yet I pray today that we would think about it in terms of our relationship with others. That we might somehow follow in his footsteps. That you might develop in each one of us a desire to love in the way that you've loved us. But of course we can't do that for, from our own power. We can't do that of our own will. We know we can do it only when we rest in what you did for each one of us. And so help us to rest and abide in your love and in your sacrifice today. I pray this in your name.